Welcome to a series of netcasts from Yale University. This is Sergio Ramirez, Nicaraguan writer and former vice president, lecturing on contemporary political changes in Latin America. Good afternoon. I'm Gil Joseph of the Yale History Department, and on behalf of the Council of Latin America and Iberian Studies, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this special lecture by the Nicaraguan writer, journalist, and statesman Sergio Ramirez Mercado. This event is co-sponsored by the Pointer Fellowship for Journalism at Yale and by the New Haven Leon Nicaragua Sister Cities Project, which, as many of you know, in the not-too-distant future, will celebrate its 25th anniversary. The Sister City Project has been sponsoring service delegations and educational events, promoting projects for sustainable development in the area of, of Leon, and in general, we think, improving relations uh, between the two nations on a citizen-to-citizen basis. And it's been doing this since the days of the, of the Nicaraguan Contra War back in the early 1980s, throughout that decade, obviously. In the process, hundreds and hundreds of New Haveners, including an increasing number of Yale students, have become involved and energized. Last summer, in fact, the project celebrated a milestone in sending its 1,000th delegate from New Haven to Nicaragua when a high school delegation that I'm proud to say included our son Matt, who's here with us this afternoon, visited and worked in Leon. Quite frankly, I can't think of a better way to showcase the Latin American Council's continuing collaboration with sister cities than an afternoon with Dr. Sergio Ramirez. Sergio Ramirez is one of Central America's most distinguished and best-known writers. In the early phase of his literary career in the 1960s and 70s, his work was intimately connected with his own political life and that of his country. The Sandinista Revolution, which ousted the decades-long Somoza family dictatorship in 1979, generated widespread international solidarity in the 1970s and 80s. The image of young revolutionaries who were often poets, artists, and intellectuals appealed to many of us in New Haven and throughout the world, and Sergio Ramirez was one of the struggle against Somoza's most articulate voices. In 1977, while Secretary General of the Confederation of, of Central American Universities, he became head of Los Doce, a group of 12 prominent intellectuals, priests, and members of civil society who public, publicly stated their support for the Sandinista Front for National Liberation and whose international diplomatic efforts served to facilitate the revolution's military triumph over the dictatorship. When the Sandinistas came to power in 1979, Dr. Ramirez became part of the Junta of National Reconstruction, where he presided over the National Council of Education. During these years of revolutionary reform, in addition to serving as Nicaragua's vice president from 1984 to 1990, he founded the vital editorial house, Nueva Nicaragua, and along with cultural minister Ernesto Cardenal, supported a new generation of Nicaraguan writers and intellectuals. Although the Sandinista Front lost power to the UNO coalition headed by Violeta Chamorro in 1990, Sergio Ramirez continued to serve as the leader of the Sandinista bloc 
in the National Assembly until 1995. In that year, he founded the movement for Sandinista renovation, owing to differences he had on issues of democratic reform with other Sandinista leaders, such as the former and current president of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega. In his personal memoir of the Sandinista Revolution, which is aptly entitled Adios Muchachos, and which we're going to circulate. You can see it's very well read. It's by many of us. Uh, we need it back. Uh, in, in his memoir and in other writings, Dr. Ramirez has become retrospectively critical of Sandinista policies that he views as responsible for turning many Nicaraguans against the Frente Sandinista. Acting on his beliefs, Sergio Ramirez made an unsuccessful bid for the presidency in 1996. Since then, while deeply involved in his nation and Latin America's cultural and political life as a writer and columnist, he's remained retired from electoral politics. Through it all, Sergio Ramirez has continued to produce his literary work, which has earned him numerous awards and distinctions. By my count, he has published easily over 20 volumes which include novels, collections of short stories and essays, and, of course, his memoir. His latest book, only just published, is Tambor Olvidado, or Forgotten Drum, an essay that addresses Nicaragua's unique cultural formation, including the nation's frequently ignored African roots. Among Dr. Ramirez's many international awards is the Bruno Kresge Prize for Human Rights, awarded in Vienna in 1984, the same year that Sister Cities here in uh, New Haven was created. He was named a Chevalier, a Knight of Arts and Letters in Paris in 1993, and he's taught and received honorary degrees at many distinguished universities in Latin America, Europe, and the United States. The theme of his presentation this afternoon New Winds or Old Storms, Contemporary Political Changes in Latin America could not be more timely, particularly in light of recent victories of left and reformist governments throughout the region, the so-called pink tide that you've been hearing about, and in light of the sharpening of differences between some of these governments and the United States and its regional allies. It is a distinct privilege to welcome Sergio Ramirez to Yale. Thank you very much for your kind presentation. Uh, thank you for the University of Yale for this invitation to speak before you this afternoon about the current situation in Latin America. I would like to say that uh, I always prefer to speak about literature. But in any case, I do my work correctly. <laughs> After the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the so-called real socialism, the participation of the state in the economy, which was something inherent to the idea of socialism, fell in total discredit. By then, no one in the left dared to speak about plant economy or state-managed economy. So left-wing parties lacking a project of their own couldn't help but to tolerate the proclamation of the universal panacea of the market. It was the beginning of the 90s. We were told then that the market economy was equal to democracy. 
In Latin America, we were just coming out of a long period of military dictatorships. Coup d'etat or sent in revolutions like the one in Nicaragua, and we were entering the end of history as it was proclaimed. From then on, everything would be counted in terms of the prosperity produced by a limitless market. The message of radical liberalism proclaimed that the fewer the restriction to the market economy, the sooner the kingdom of well-being and full employment would arrive. The more state companies were privatized and more neutral became the role of the state in the economy, the greater the benefits that would pour down on the population. Employment, housing, education, and health. It was easy to illustrate this with, the, with uh, an old example. When the tide goes up in the bay, big sheep move, but also small ones. Another old political adage of the 19th century liberalism also reemerged. Each one should take care of its part because the whole takes care of itself. This way, the old state worried about the whole should be put to rest and having to worry, to worry solely about one's part, dreams and ideals, solidarity, concern for our neighbor also went to rest or to exile. The truth is that in Latin America, no one had experienced state socialism in flesh and blood, except through the seismic waves that the Cuban Revolution was always sending, and, so, and to some extent through the much more heterodox experience of the Sandinist Revolution in Nicaragua. Outside those examples, the old revolutionary assumptions of left-wing parties, beginning with land reform, had only very brief or reduced experimentation space in Bolivia or Guatemala during the early 50s. Change proclaimed by the left were nothing but all dreams never fulfilled. The voters, armed with hope and patience, began to see that the promises of instantaneous well-being attributed to the market were taking too long. Privatization of public corporations became focuses of corruption and enrichment and the sacrifices imposed by fiscal and financial policies only result in the loss of work stations, freezing of wages, deterioration of life conditions, and expansion of the old abyss between rich and poor, impeccable monetary adjustments, but substantial increment of poverty, reduction of foreign debt, but growth of social debt. Pretty soon, the model ended up being not the market economy, but the market society. And a kingdom was established for what Pope John Paul II called wild capitalism, we know. The building had been too cheerful. The welfare state was abolished in countries where it hadn't even existed, which meant to dramatically reduce social expense. Under the new credo, everything was privatized, even essential services as health and drinking water. The economies of the Latin American countries were put in a, in a straight jacket, and macroeconomic figures indeed began to change. Tax deficits decreased because public expenditure decreased and inflation was controlled. But the bridge between the rich who benefit from these measures and the poor who suffer them 
began to broaden more and more. We increasingly had richer rich and poorer poor, and democracy didn't generate prosperity as had been promised, so people ended up getting tired. On the other hand, in various countries, the old political systems that were the result of pacts for democratic stability began to collapse. In Venezuela, for example, after the fall of dictator Perez Jimenez, mm -hmm. the pact signed in 1958 between social democrats and Christian democrats collapsed from oldness and ineffectiveness. The crisis opened the door for Colonel Hugo Chavez coup d'etat to the government of Carlos Andres Perez in 1992, which though failed, it won Chavez enough prestige to be elected president in 1998. The bipartisan system also collapsed in Argentina, where the radical party failed in absolute discredit after the government of Néstor de la Rúa failed. That untied a political and unprecedented economic crisis. In fact, the Justicialista Party is actually the only existing party today, and presidential power is disputed among the Peronists, divided in different factions, some positioned more to the right as that of President Menning, others more to the left as that of the Kirchner marriage. Another traditional system that went in crisis was Costa Rica. President Oscar Arias, a social democrat, precariously won the election in 2006 as candidate of the old National Liberation Party against a dissident candidate of the same party, Otón Solís, opposed to privatizations and to the free trade treaty with the United States. Meanwhile, the party that represented the other half of the system, the Christian Social Unity, collapsed after having two former presidents from that party sentenced and imprisoned for corruption. People didn't want more of the same, and so the old system went into crisis. The political parties lost credibility, and so did the institution. What good was democracy? What good was to elect the same people? Voters soon realized that they had a weapon in their hands, which was precisely the vote. If they had used the vote to elect right-wing governments without any result in their lives, they could well use it in the other direction to choose emerging leaders who questioned the old system. What would happen if they elected those leaders that were telling them the opposite? They wondered. Those that were telling them the neoliberal system was the cause of all their ills, of their marginalization, of their poverty. With the new century, the pendulum had begun to swing toward the other end, from right towards left. Today, if we look at the political map of Latin America, we find only four governments coming from right-wing parties. Mexico, Colombia, Paraguay, and El Salvador. But this group threatens to be drastically reduced. Fernando Lugo, former bishop of the Catholic Church in Paraguay, who is running as an emergent candidate from the left, is leading the surveys. His victory would mean the end of the reign of the Colorado Party in power for almost 70 years. 
and the FMLN, the old Marxist guerrilla transformed into a political party in El Salvador, also has a strong possibilities to win the presidential elections against ARENA. Furthermore, for the first time in Central America, we would have governments from Guatemala to Panama that wouldn't be from the right. A radical change for countries long ago depicted as banana republics. No one in Europe would find it rare in a given moment electoral waves sweep away right-wing governments. Voters always reward success and punish failure. This is a good but not enough reason to explain the changes among us. Certainly the, con the conscience factor determined by political culture is far from being the same in both continents. So all promises wore out and now the left is in the presidential palaces. But which left? There are left leaders in power, it is true, but that doesn't mean they belong to a homogeneous political landscape. Throughout the map, the territory of the left doesn't have the same color. Labor leaders, indigenous leaders, all guerrilla fighters, military rebels, bishops who drop their cassock, a respectable pediatrician woman, an oncologist. Why are they there? Why, or what unite them and what divides them? Let's take a look at the map. Cuba in the first place, with the traditional Leninist regime that will soon complete half a century, is the only country with that state economy and one-party system in the continent. Then, populist governments in different grades with an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist speech that intend to replace the traditional political structures in Venezuela, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Bolivia. Governments of social democratic sign with a socialist program market marked by pragmatism in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. Social democratic governments which range from center to left in Dominican Republic, Peru, Costa Rica, Panama, Honduras, and Guatemala. However, one cannot imagine a block of less-wing countries in Latin America under a unique socialist ideology like, for example, the Soviet field until the end of the Cold War, when there were state, states with a uniform structure and behavior in East Europe. We are far, far from that. But there are alignments between them, the most apparent being that of the countries that form ALBA, the Bolivarian alliance led by President Chavez and integrated by Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Nicaragua. It is a bloc that has a declared political profile, cooperation mechanisms based on oil supply from Venezuela to its partners, and the intention of integrating a, mili a military alliance in which the conflict with Colombia is a very important factor. This conflict has a decisive geopolitical influence in Latin America. 
the leftist guerrillas in Colombia have been around for half, half a century. They are a real army with the proportion of a regular, regular force, and they dominate an extensive wild territory bordering with Venezuela and Ecuador. Their old romantic aura has been darkened by their holding in drug traffic where they obtain considerable resources and their presence in the territory of Venezuela and Ecuador, where they obtain supplies and establish resting camps, create periodic crises like the one that rose a few uh, uh, weeks ago. Colombia troops assaulted the guerrilla camp in, in Ecuadorian territory, killing a guerrilla leader and causing the severance of diplomatic ties with Ecuador, Venezuela, and Nicaragua with Colombia. Nicaragua also has a conflict concerning maritime boundaries with Colombia. But let's, let us retalk, return to Chavez, to the Chavez blog. Chavez uses oil supply on concessional terms seeking for alliances beyond the Alba limits. This way, beside the concessional oil agreements with Bolivia, Ecuador, Cuba, and Nicaragua, he also grants cheap oil to Uruguay, Honduras, Dominican Republic, and Guatemala, and to El Salvador, through in El Salvador, the municipal councils controlled by the FMLN. The generous loans, the donations, the support to eternal debt redemption, as was done with Argentina, as well as the creation of the Banco del Sur and the gas duct that would extend from Orinoco to Rio de la Plata, are also instruments destined to consolidate Chavez's political leadership and expand it beyond its frontiers. On the other hand, there are presidents in the map who identify with the responsible socialism of of President Lula, which gives him kind of a continental leadership. But this doesn't mean there is a block of countries around Brazil as Alba around Venezuela. It is a matter of identities. These presidents like Alvaro Colón in Guatemala or candidate Lugo in Paraguay have stated some sort of choice, the pragmatism of Lula instead of Chavez's radical rhetoric. Lula comes from labor files, a metallurgist, union leader. He has won prestige as a statement that puts economic growth and democratic stability above ideological quarrels. Anyway, Brazil is an economic power in all sense, less volatile than Venezuela and more reliable as, as a long-term partner, partner for other Latin American countries. Also, Lula differs from Chavez in their scope of energy policies. While for Chavez, oil is the axis of his international influence, Lula is looking for partners in Latin America to produce biofuel based on agriculture, mainly sugarcane. And here the hair of ideology jumps to Fidel Castro, Chavez, and Ortega. Transforming food into fuel is a crime against humanity and the perpetrator of this crime is a socialist. The Alba populist bloc could not be explained without the leadership of President Chavez. 
in one or other sense, the fate of the government that formed it is bound to Chavez's own fate, who has the key to oil, which is the main, if not the only, factor of cohesion of this alliance. This allows his allies to exercise a subordinate populism like Nicaragua, where President Ortega capacity to give, subsides, coal, pigs, poultry, and building materials to people in need depend on the open hand of Chavez. But at the same time, in such a small economy as Nicaragua's, this stream of subsidies and donation is like poison candy because it causes inflation. Ortega can use the money he received from selling the oil subsidized by Chavez to gas station, local gas station, to finance his social programs, but he cannot lower the fuel prices to consumers because it's also inflationary. Chavez cannot allow it because the organization of countries that produce oil doesn't allow him. So operating and living costs continues to rise in Nicaragua in spite of Chavez oil and in spite of the populist speech. If one day international oil prices fell or Chavez could not control the growing turbulences in the Venezuela economy, inflation, lack of supplies, this alliance would hopelessly, hopelessly dissolve. The fact that he already lost the plebiscite for a radical constitutional reform last year is a warning of the political precariousness of this regime and therefore of the political precariousness of his alliances. So, among the left government in Latin America, not only their identities count or their color area in the map, not only counts the way in which they are aligned, but also other types of interest. Economic interest, border interest, which countries are rich and which countries are poor, who extend the hand to give and who extend it to demand, what class of old or new border conflicts there are among those countries, and even the territorial size of each one. Brazil has a visible presence in South America. It shares borders with practically all southern and, uh, countries and sells its product to all of them. It also is the tenth economy of the world, and no one can ignore this weight. When Evo Morales decided to nationalize the gas de deposits in Bolivia, Brazil was the most affected. Petrobras, which is a Brazilian state-owned company, was one of the biggest foreign concessionaries for the exploitation of Bolivian gas. How should Lula respond to this measure? As president of a re regional superpower that see its economic interests affected, or as a socialist president who understands the nationalist demands of another socialist president. At that moment, Bolivia was a poor country reacting in front of a rich country. Those are the differences and the specific ways that cannot be obviated. When Uruguay decide to set up a cellulose plant in its margin of the river Uruguay, Argentina reacted against its alleging environmental damages. Argentina is a strong power 
Uruguay has no power at all. It has been so since both countries, which had a common history, decide to follow separate roads. In this conflict, Uruguay has seen itself as the small country that had the right to seek development through transcendental investments. The cellulose plant was first to be set up in Argentinian site, according to the Uruguayan allegation, and then there were no objections. This matter is still in dispute in international tribunals, but it is a clash between the Argentina of the Kirchner, Marriage, who are declared socialist, and the Uruguay of President Tabaré Vázquez, the oncologist, also a declared socialist. So where does ideological identity stand? Which is the weight of political affinity? I could give other examples that mark the differences and contradiction among Latin American left-wing governments. But for me, one is the most important and the most decisive, democratic will. It's that simple. Whether left-wing leaders, once reaching the presidency, pretend to stay or accept alternability in power as a rule. Simple, but crucial because it marks the frontier between democratic will and authoritarian will, and that makes the difference. Alternability or indefinite reelection, they are two clear and different roles to the left. In Brazil, again, Lula is heading toward the end of his second mandate, and until now he says, until now he says he will not seek a third. He called pure folly the proposal of some, the proposal of some influential partisan of his to run again as candidate. On the other hand, a key reform to the constitution of Venezuela that Chavez submitted to popular consultation was indefinite reelection. He lost the place visit, and that possibility is closed for the time being, as he said, which means that he will try it again. Before the place visit in, of Venezuela, when they asked Lula what he thought of the indefinite reelection proposed by Chavez, he responded, I quote, I can only speak for Brazil, and I think Brazil cannot play with a thing called democracy. It took us a long time, and a lot of people suffered to consolidate it. End of the quote. He was just remembering, remembering that Brazil has suffered a 20-year military dictatorship between 1964 and 1985, and before that, the dictatorship of a popular leader, Getulio Vargas, that made similar promises as Chavez. That is not a gratuitous reference for a continent that in the past underwent dictatorship as a course of history. Dictatorships in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Colombia, in Bolivia, in the Dominican Republic, in Cuba, in Argentina, in Chile, in Guatemala, generally supported by successive administration of the United States. Once in Managua, during the first Congress of the Sandinist Front, back in the 90s, I heard Lula say in a speech, that the great mistake of the left had been to create an ideological difference between bourgeois democracy 
and proletarian democracy, when truly there was only one class of democracy. In doing so, the left had acquired a bad prestige being presented as an enemy to democracy, which means to voting and choosing your rulers. Those are words I never forgot. And for me, it marks the great difference among the leaders of the Latin American left in power today. Those who think that democracy, that allows alternability in power, is an outdated system, are still thinking in terms of bourgeois democracy and thinking that by taking advantage this, the bourgeois democracy, of the bourgeois democracy mechanisms, some sort of proletarian democracy can be built. Then they are looking toward the past. They speak of sweeping institution and establishing a new system that should arise from the ashes of the old system. But in that new system, the leader, or caudillo, as we say in Latin America, should remain where he is because he is judge indispensable. And in order to do so, it needs a constitution that allows him to be reelected as many times as deemed to be necessary or as many times as he wants. This is not a new system. It is the same one we have recurrently lived with since the 19th century, a source of bad habits, corruption, confrontation, violence, and poverty. Again, we're in front of the irreplaceable leader, the enlightened who knows who, what the country needs. The irreplaceable, irreplaceable leader is not precisely just an old idea of the left. It comes from the darkest bottom of Latin American history, from the deepest abyss of patriarchal society, where the landowner became the military leader and then the perpetual president. What we need in modern democracy, with citizens having the right to choose and alternability in government, real democracy of all times that don't not reject those same individuals' freedom proclaimed in the Constitution born with independence in the 19th century, which have always been so unpleasant for dictatorships of all times. Today, authoritarian socialism or populism speak of revolutionary truths that cannot be challenged, and before such declaration, press freedom, and freedom of speech suffer a lot. And so we go back to the time of absolute truths that by some coincidence always come to be official truths. Power claims the exclusive right to reason and truth property to decide what is fair for public information, fair and healthy what is harmful for the political order and what is not. And when it isn't, it is registered as part of the conspiracy to undermine power. Power declared itself incompatible with tolerance in front of other people's thought and therefore decides to prevent other people's thought to be expressed. A state philosophy is reviving which seeks to be expressed through constitutional warrants and specific laws in which freedom of speech should be regulated. That is to say, subjected on behalf of a huddle of reasons always alleged. 
for the old right and their military arms is was for national reasons, for national, excuse me, security reasons. For authoritarian socialists, it is for the interests of the large popular majorities. Once reaching government, the leaders of the authoritarian left intended to be reelected without limit to lead the construction of their political model. It is what Chavez inaugurated and then find followers in other countries. But reality modifies always intentions. We must take into consideration that political projects with a messianic character always need great consent. In Venezuela, Bolivia, or Nicaragua, the emerging leaders who want total power have the support of a substantial part of the population, but not of all the population. It is a strong support, but not a majority. And in front of radical proposal, polarization happens. That is the reason why Chavez lost the plebiscite to change the constitution in Venezuela. In Bolivia, the new constitution proposed by Evo Morales has created confrontations that even threaten domestic territorial integrity. And the new constitution is still pending to be ratified by a plebiscite. In Nicaragua, no matter how much he wants to stay in the presidency, Daniel Ortega knows that he was elected by hardly 38% of the vote, and he doesn't have the consent to radically change the constitution and remove the obstacles of non-reelection. We also need to remember that changes in power in those countries have taken place through voting and not through weapons. That established some severe limits to proposal for radical changes. Revolutions come to be a source of right and use their power while it still lacks institutional forms to change everything without consulting anyone. But it is an art power which created its own legality. Now, changes must go through legal consultation processes, and therefore the voice of the citizens must be heard. Institutional mechanisms cannot be obviated either, no matter how subject to manipulation they might be. The constitutional reforms that would allow Chavez to stay in the presidency until death were frozen by the lies by, by last year's plebiscite. The original proposal in the new constitution of Bolivia was indefinite reelection, but the text approved last year by, by the Constituent Assembly states that President Evo Morales can only do it once. In Ecuador, the original proposal was also indefinite reelection, but President Rafael Correa has declared now that the reelection should be, I quote, one single time, because we sincerely believe that democracy is alternability. The changes in those intentions, whether forced or not, are advances toward a common idea of democracy in Latin America. In Nicaragua, the Constitution doesn't allow continuous reelection, but in order to stay, President Ortega is determined to reform it or create a parliamentary regime that allows him to act as a first minister with a decorative president.
but these traps are too visible. In, if the election took place today, according to the surveys, Ortega would lose by 60% of the vote. There is a last substantial question. What is the scope for economic and social change? To what extent can radical rhetoric become a reality in the lives of the poor? Are we witnessing a true revolutionary transformation of the property system and distribution of wealth? The proposal for the state to lead the economy and even intervene in it continues to be a done proposal and some of the left governments don't even dare to rise it. The state can no longer intervene radically to distribute the surpluses of the economy among the poorest without perturbing macroeconomic balances and without upsetting the international financial organisms. The left can not intervene private companies or multinational capital banks. The simple threat of doing so creates alarm and alarm drives away foreign investors. All this means that the left also lives in a real world, which is, which is now a global world from which it can hardly escape. It cannot escape from the free trade treaties or free market associations or patent and brand treaties. And that reality, far from the flaming revolutionary rhetoric, tells us that this is a left that governs, in most cases, poor countries that cannot survive by themselves. They must aim to sustain economic growth amid the dollar crisis and the crisis of financial markets that come from the United States and the constant rises in oil prices which come from Venezuela. A great paradox, this last one. The left that used to demonize social democracy like an edulcorated variant of capitalist exploitation cannot go beyond a project of reformed market economy in search of benefiting the poorest. Some of the new left leaders in government are talking of political structural changes that have to do with political power, but few of them are speaking of economic structural changes to transform the economic structure of their, of their countries. My generation laughed at our parents' wisdom who wanted to moderate our radical fervor, remembering us, eh, pardon, remembering that in order to distribute wealth, you first need to create it. <laughs> Today, very few laugh at that advice. And no left-wing ruler denies that in order to have any wealth to distribute, Fiscal discipline is necessary and investment is necessary and that the worst enemy to the poorest income is inflation. Maybe that moderation doesn't fit in the head of those who want abundant resources to spend, which they think are endless and those can be infinitely wasted. But that is an illusion. And I'm not speaking of good or bad intentions. I assume that populism is based on good, on, on good feelings. 
and sol on solidarity, on the desire to favor those who have little or nothing. But that goodwill cannot help having disastrous consequences which, wrong, which turn against those in wants to favor. Neither can the left offer homogeneous solution to the different countries of Latin America where it has reached power since the weight of heterogeneity is overwhelming even for neighboring countries. Chavez's speech can resemble a lot that of Evo Morales, and both speeches in their rhetoric resemble that of Fidel Castro. But of all of them, only Chavez can carry out expensive populist experiments because he is the only one that has the oil sources permanently open. Anyway, pragmatists always take, takes his share. Chavez nationalized foreign companies but he pays them at market prices to avoid being exposed to international reprisals. And though he threatened to cut oil supplies to the United States, he would never dare to do so because he knew it would be suicidal. Evo Morales, in turn, carried out the just nationalization of the gas reserves based on a pragmatic understanding with exploit concession owners. And he knows the sharpest international problem for Bolivia is the claim for an exit to the sea, which, has, which he has to resolve with Chile, where there is another left government, but of a very different uh, nature. <coughs> However, if something unites the multicolor left map of these governments, is the heap of contradiction with the United States some more visible and more evident than others. And it is obvious that the United States doesn't have any hemispheric policy except for the application of all prejudice canon that only facilitates confrontation and those which come from the ambition of having bilateral free trade treaties with each Latin American country without giving in any substantial way in these protectionist privileges and also, of course, policies to combat drugs which represent high costs for the Latin American countries and policies to combat terrorism shared without restraint. One of those old prejudices and confused canon is that of the migratory policies, which is even more darkened in times of electoral campaign in the United States. Behavior before the immigrants is always subject to judgment in Latin America because it affects millions, those who come over here and those who stay there, and it will continue to be a point of friction until truly fair solutions are applied. There will continue to be left-wing governments in Latin America, elected by the citizens. My aspiration is that when voters are deceived by them, they remove them with their vote as they remove the right-wing governments that failed. But I wish even more that left-wing governments succeed in favoring the poorest and in creating societies where equity and justice reigns when it comes to distribution of wealth. But this only be achieved if we devote ourselves to democracy and stay away from authoritarianism. Furthermore, I think that a left that moves away from democracy ceased to be such because it lost its identity 
and is assimilated by the old authoritarian right. Authoritarianism does have a single color. The left has the challenge to seek solutions to the precarious life conditions of the poorest, no matter how difficult the task might be, because it, its essence resides in that, but it should do it far from populism. And no less important, it is, is its performance in the exercise of power from, far from corruption practices so habitual in Latin America. When a democratic system works, it can investigate and demand accountability to those who govern. For that reason, authoritarianism also embodies another danger, the lack of transparency. When all power is in a single fist, even if it is a left fist, it is easier for illicit fortunes to rise and for those who proclaim the redemption of the poor to become rich overnight. I have witnessed such cases. People hope for things to change, but to change mainly in the ethical dimension. And in this and in many other senses, the left needs to demonstrate that it is different and that it is faithful to its principle among which moral integrity and democracy can not be absent. For more on the Latin American Studies Council at the Macmillan Center, please visit yale.edu slash Macmillan. This was recorded on March 27, 2008.